It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, good day, listeners, and welcome to the Two Jacks, uh, what we call the Combo Podcast, where we go all around the world and uh, look at matters domestic and political and media in uh, in the wide brown land, Australia as well. And joining me, as per usual, is Hong Kong Jack, because he's all the way in Hong Kong. G'day, Jack. How are you today, mate? G'day, Jack. Now, just before we start, we've got a competitor. Oh, really? Yeah, we do. Who Malcolm is it? Tur- Malcolm Turnbull has announced oh, this morning he's yes, doing so a podcast. He, I did see that. Yes, uh, he's going to save democracy by doing a podcast. Yeah. I think we should. I think we should have Malcolm on as a guest on our podcast. We well, could ask him, uh, "Oh, what sort of question?" We could say, "Tell us how smart you are, Malcolm." <laughs> Look, I, uh, I have spoken to uh, Malcolm on a number of occasions over a number of uh, matters uh, of interest to him. I can tell you that he's a very erudite fellow, very, very well informed. It goes to the sort of Paul Keating assessment uh, of him. We could uh, refer to that where Paul Keating was telling Rudd uh, that uh, uh, there were things to be concerned about with uh, when, when Kevin Rudd as PM had Malcolm Turnbull as, as the leader of the opposition. Uh, he said, yeah, "The first thing you got to uh, first thing you got to know about him is that he is very, very talented. Uh, the second thing is, you, you'll, you'll, uh, he is utterly ruthless and utterly courageous, utterly brave. Uh, and uh, Kevin Rudd says, is there any good news?' And then you know, King says, he's got no judgment." Yeah, that um, was the Keating it, assessment. It, it doesn't take you long to work out that Malcolm's very smart because he'll tell you. No, <laughs> he's that, look. He's a, he's a very impressive person to talk to. I, he I, is. I, I would say he was, that. he was my local member for some years. Yes, of course, and, and he was very active. He didn't need to be really, but no. uh, uh, because it was a fairly safe seat. Um, well, fairly safe, not not uh, like uh, it had been in the seventies. But but he was a very active local member, uh, and uh, and he is you know he's he's worth the. Worth the price of admission just to have a chat to if uh, if you ever get the opportunity. Um, uh, put aside an hour or two if there yeah. are matters that are close to his heart. Um, yes, he's doing the podcast. I think it's Saving Democracy or something of that order. Defending um, Democracy. I defending think. Democracy. Yeah, well, yeah. someone's got to do it, Jack. Um, uh, as we go to where the uh, Sally Rugg claim against her employer, she was the... Chief of Staff to Monique Ryan, the Teal member for Kuyong. And, of course, Sally Rugg was claiming that Monique Ryan was asking her to work unreasonable hours for what was uh, a six-figure salary, but not a high six-figure salary, it must be said. And that's been thrown out of the federal court today, Jack. Uh, yes, the, uh, almost as we speak, uh, the judge has uh, dismissed the interlocutory injunction. There was a, uh, an injunction preventing Ryan from dismissing Rudd, which means that she's been on the taxpayer uh, funding uh, all the way through since this blew up before Christmas. 
not popping into the office, just uh, no, sitting back, uh, going to the beach, of, all that yeah, sort of stuff. Well, what are they called? Lisa, actually working from home. Working from uh, home, doing a bit yeah. of gardening. Mm. Yeah. Um, so uh, that will end um, uh, this week, I would think, um, uh, because it there is d- no reason now for Monique Ryan not to dismiss She would her. be summarily dismissed. Uh, um, there's a number of things that uh, I'd ask you to speculate on, but firstly... This was essentially uh, um, um, Sally Ruggs, lawyers, Josh Bernstein particularly, were, were trying to challenge the notion of excessive overtime without pay more generally across the, uh, the, the, um, the industrial landscape, Jack. Um, mm. That was part of it, really. So it, it, as it stood, it, it, it could well have been a very significant matter, but... We don't know exactly why the judgment has been made, but they've thrown out the. Um, uh, in, in short order, she thought that the, the judge thought that the uh, arrangements that Sally Rugg suggested could enable the two of them to work together were not feasible. Um, but the, the, the judgment will be published. The judge ordered that her reasons be published, but the headline is that she didn't think the arrangements could be feasible. Okay, and of course, the federal court um, just before Christmas uh, got it and made contact with all sort of major me- uh, media organisations and said, "Look, we'll be we'll be a bit slow uh, in getting uh, paperwork to, to you in, in, in terms of publishing judgments, in terms of publishing affidavits, and all matters relevant arising in the federal court check, which is a bit of a bit of a problem, quite frankly. Um, mm. They were doing it as a sort of administrative restraint, um, numbers." Numbers uh, uh, support staff and what have you were not available to, to to publish these things in a timely fashion or really an immediate fashion, and now there's a lot of stuff that's just sort of waits, um, which is a bit of a problem. So uh, Sally Rudjack, I have to ask you to speculate. Now that she's done this, it's a, as, as we say, a courageous move, and um, it's uh, Sir Humphrey courageous. <laughs> it's Sir Humphrey, Sir Humphrey Appleby courageous from yes, Prime Minister, yes, Minister. Um, what are her chances of employment in the long run? Well, I think if you were sitting there thinking, uh, which person will we give that job to? Do we want the person who's going to sue us and cause trouble? No, we probably don't. Um, <laughs> you'd, have to, you'd have to have it in the back of your mind, wouldn't you, Jack? Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and it is a bold move. Uh, so, um, uh, but, but to be fair, to be fair, these political advisor jobs—it's a bit like being an underground coal miner. They're shitty jobs, and if you don't want to do the work, don't take them I on. Do. I'm doing. I think that was always the point here, wasn't it? Um, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that, that that basically she, you know, she should have understood, um, and and indeed, if she didn't get in touch with other chiefs of staff uh, <coughs> for MPs and ministers and find out what the working arrangements are, because I guarantee, and we ran through some of them, some of them involve you getting up at four o'clock in the morning, fetching yeah. the papers. Uh, going to a meeting at six o'clock in the morning uh, and working all the way through often till eight or ten o'clock at night and sometimes beyond that uh, and doing that, getting up and doing it all over again the next day. And if you don't want to be part of the environment, just say no thanks. Well, the, the, when I say they're shitty jobs, the, the actual working conditions in that sense, in terms of the hours and the demands, are pretty awful. But they're very fulfilling jobs, which you know, we've had friends, both of us had friends who've done these jobs and, mm. and really enjoyed them. Yeah, that's um, right. But, but, but it, 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 is a, it is hard. You know? it's, yeah, it, there are long working hours. You're, you're right in the middle of some of the more important matters arising in the nation. So that's the exciting part. But... 
they, they are very, very long hours. So, yes, uh, that's all in breaking news. <laughs> and, there, there was a bit of sledging at Monique, right? Oh, yes, it uh, was. As, in as we read it through uh, in the affidavit um, mm. uh, put up by uh, Sally Rugg, she said that Dr. Ryan said to her, you don't understand, I need to be the best. This is bigger than Kuyong. I don't know what it's going to be, but I know it's bigger than Kuyong. I want to be Prime Minister one day. Um, and uh, and this was causing a fair bit of controversy, which I, I thought was completely unwarranted. Monique Ryan wouldn't be the first person who's joined the parliament uh, pretty convinced that they would be Prime Minister. <laughs> There's a long list of them, actually. I think Bill Shilton was told when he was about four he was going to be uh, Prime yeah. Minister of Australia at some point. Of course, uh, Bob Hawke was told that and went on to do it. But um, but it, 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 the, the, the actual elections of Prime Minister uh, due to the party room and federal elections, of course, uh, a lot rarer than those uh, uh, than those who actually are told by their patted on the head by their mums and told you know you'll be prime minister one day. Yeah, yeah. And Hawkey had an advantage that he he had something in common with the Australian people. Um, they loved Bob Hawke, and Bob Hawke loved Bob Hawke. <laughs> he did love the people though. He had that uh, extraordinary touch with them, uh, and it allowed him to be prime minister, long uh, Labor's longest serving prime minister, Jack, and the uh, best one. Um, well, that's a matter for argument, but uh, he, he certainly was the, he was the longer serving. Um, uh, is Bruce Learman, the man uh, uh, the man who was accused and um, uh, and ultimately um, uh, what do we say, Jack? Uh, the, the, he was acquitted. He, he, he was acquitted due to shall we say jury um, 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 misbehaviour, misconduct. Uh, well, I don't even think he. I don't uh, think he should say that. I mean, the, the DPP discontinued it. That's a quit. That's, that's an acquittal. That's an acquittal, is it? So, so basically, he was uh, he was uh, found to be. Um, uh, found, there was a no trial, a mistrial in the first instance, and then there was no second instance. So we call that an acquittal. Now, uh, is he now doing a Jack Elliott? And just to explain to our listeners who haven't picked up on this, this is. Uh, we, we call it someone who uh, escapes um, uh, escapes a matter often before the courts um, uh, and often by a, a very close margin uh, ex- escapes consequence and then uh, fires up the lawyers to uh, to try and wipe out everybody who's done him wrong uh, since and we call that doing a Jack Elliot. Is Bruce Lehman doing a Jack Elliot, Jack? Because he's he's. He's running around threatening to sue people. All over. He has actually sued Lisa Wilkinson, hasn't he? And Channel 10 and various other organisations mm. as well. Um, and uh, I, you sort of wonder, because if you're suing on this, you're putting your own character yeah. uh, up on the chopping block. Um, and um, Lisa Wilkinson, interestingly, has has um, come out from behind the Channel 10 lawyer's umbrella and sought her own legal counsel. And she says she intends to... Um, run the truth defence, that is, argue that he did indeed um, sexually assault or rape uh, Brittany Higgins. Um, that's uh, that's what we call doing a Jack Elliott. Yeah, because and we sort of wonder whether that's a wise move. You know, my, my, yeah, look, it's it's yet to be, it's yet to make its way uh, into proceedings, but um, uh, you just do wonder because once you get into this process, and this is a defamation. Uh, this is a defamation action. Once you get into that uh, process, every 
element of your character, every uh, every uh, potential area of misconduct or potential scandal will be explored in the courts. You know, Even those of us who never committed a crime would find that an uncomfortable it would, experience. It would be a very, very difficult thing to go through. And, uh, yeah, so uh, we'll wait and see as to uh, whether Bruce has actually done a Jack Elliott or not. And, mm. and uh, just, to rem- just to remind ourselves, Jack Elliott got off on a number of criminal blues uh, and then uh, sued everyone. Uh, including those in the National Crime Authority, who I think that's its successor at the time, and uh, it ended very badly with with Big Jack uh, down at the Carlton laundromat watching his uh, undies and jocks go around every Wednesday night. <laughs> yeah, he blew, he blew the whole fortune. He did the lot. All right, Cabinet Solidarity, Jack, how does it work when we see something like this? And this is we're just talking about the robo-debt Royal Commission when Malcolm Turnbull appeared yesterday, Jack, and... Uh, Said he didn't know a whole lot about it, and uh, just presumed that that uh, his ministers were taking care of things. And he said, and he, he prefaced his remarks to the Royal Commission uh, yesterday, Jack, by saying that uh, he did not, or when he was prime minister, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, he, he did not run government from his office. That he basically allowed cabinet to make big decisions and then the responsibilities uh, for uh, for the administration of whatever they decided would go would fall back on the ministers which is a perfectly good arrangement that's the way it should be isn't it yeah it is the way it should be yeah that the prime minister can't micromanage every little thing if he tries to he, firstly he'll make um, uh, you know, he'll be working longer than, than Monique Ryan uh, every day, and and also he, he will upset many of his colleagues. Yeah, it, it, uh, cabinet government is the way the government works properly. That's right. So and, and that, that requires cabinet solidarity. Solidarity, and this came up um, during the royal commission because uh, Stuart Robert, who was a, a, the relevant minister at least for a time. Um, said that he had massive, massive personal misgivings about some of the figures he'd given out in the media. But as a cabinet minister, that's what we do, and that's perfectly correct. What he's how how I read what he was saying was that although he personally didn't agree with the decision the cabinet had made about this, part of cabinet solidarity is that you all speak with one voice when you walk out of the room. Yeah, so Stuart Robert, who was the uh, Department of Human Services Minister uh, after Tudge and after Morrison, uh, he, he sort of had, he really had to sort of mop up a lot of big, big problems in regard to robo-debt. And he was the minister when ultimately the findings were made in in the federal court that, um, uh, that robo-debt was in fact illegal and that um, <coughs> and the Commonwealth... Uh, had to repay and compensate uh, claimants uh, to a tune of around about $2 billion, Jack. Um, uh, Robert went on to say, he did say, a legal opinion's only an opinion, Jack, in his evidence. There's a bit of truth in that. (laughs) It's only an opinion. I mean, mean, the, the, the great sort of talking point about this is that the legal opinion was withheld to the best of our knowledge, was withheld 
from uh, from his predecessor Tudge, um, um, by the by the department itself, who were in receipt of a. Um, Legal opinion developed by an an, outs, an, an outside legal firm, uh, and that also when the solicitor general turned its uh, mind to um, uh, to a to a an opinion that finally came through when Stuart Robb was there, um, but it, it would seem that you know this is a complete and utter disaster, mainly driven by. Um, by the, the employees, and I note the uh, head of the department will give evidence in the Royal Commission today. It's Gatham Campbell. That will be fun. Um, th- this has been a disaster partly of the politicians making, but substantially it's a failure of the bureaucracy. Yeah, it is. There's no doubt about that. And it's and it's and and, and the issue is that, that arises is that the, that the bureaucracy is saying we don't want to give people bad news. So we're just going to withhold news. So we don't want to give our department head bad news, and we don't and, and we don't want our, our sort of ministerial overlords. We don't want to give them uh, bad news either, and that just leads to really, really bad outcomes. That's effect- effectively cost the Commonwealth two billion dollars, uh, and and has has uh, caused all sorts of harm to um, to people who received. Uh, who received debt notices. I mean, even when Tudge was minister, he was running around to the media saying, oh, no, we, we, we're, not, uh, we're not expecting, uh, uh, we're not demanding uh, um, uh, costs payments uh, that from, from uh, that people might, might receive a debt, uh, a debt notice of, let's say, 10 grand, uh, and he said, but we're not charging any other fees, but they were, in fact... You know, and these yeah. are things that should have been known to him. And he's gone anyway. Uh, he claims he's wanted to spend more time with his family. He probably should have done that maybe ten years earlier. But, um, uh, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, there, there, there's a failure from government and cabinet and the relevant ministers. They don't want to hear bad news, and the bureaucracy doesn't want to give it to them. So things just muddle on in this crazy way. Yeah, well, cabinet uh, the cabinet process works properly when um, uh, robust advice is given to the cabinet. That is, that the, the bureaucracy says this is what we actually think can happen, uh, and then um, some extremely robust conversations happen in cabinet. Uh, but then when they walk out, they all sing from the same song sheet. So, what Stuart Roberts said was quite unexceptional to anyone who understands how this works. Yeah, it's a bit of a richo thing, Even though we had personal it? misgivings about it, he had a job to do. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a richo thing, isn't it? You know, you know, you know, got to lie. If you want to be in politics, you've got to learn to lie. Hmm. Uh, and that's essentially what it is. And so that, that causes great outrage in the community because they don't well, you, well, you really have, understand have to, that. You have to put a point of view. I mean, I've been a lawyer for a long time. Um, not everything you say as a lawyer is something you fervently believe to be true. Yeah, that's true. But in the case of senior politicians, the most senior in the country, um, they are being, basically they they either lie or they lose their jobs. It's as simple as that. Because if, they, if they're coming out and offering an opinion that is different to the decision that cabinet has made, then there's then there's trouble. Yeah, yeah they well, can't just, survive just, in that way. Just go back in history a bit. I think it was Paul Keating and and Kim Beasley who were on opposite sides of the argument about whether the Overseas Telecommunications Commission should be folded into 
the old telecom to become Trailster or not, or whether it should be two separate bodies. Um, and I'm told that was a very, very robust discussion in the cabinet room. But you can't, once the decision's made, um, uh, the loser of the argument has to go out there and pay, publicly advocate for the winning position, even or, though or, or he didn't remain agree. silent. Or, or remain silent. silent. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. News poll very quickly, Jack. Uh, uh, the coalition voters just had a little bit of a climb. Um, uh, that's the uh, the primary vote. A little bit of a climb. They're both sort of neck and neck. I think Labor about thirty seven, and I think uh, Liberals thirty six. And this was yeah. seen to be a great triumph for the coalition. Jack, they cannot win a government unless they've got uh, their vote about five points higher than that. Um, well, I think it, I think at this stage, anything that looks not like it's not an abject defeat is a win. Yeah, the, 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 it, it did come on the back of a lot of negative press about um, about the super changes, which, it, as it turns out, in that very same poll, Jack received uh, significant support from uh, from um, those people polled up in the into the sixty percent. Uh, yeah. the, the super changes, which which affect a very very small number of people, and uh, not in any significant way anyway. Um, <laughs> Except for one thing, there's one very unusual thing about uh, the super changes, and that is that as they're currently announced, um, they are seeking to levy a tax on unrealised capital gains. That is, that if you, the value of your property goes up, um, you've got to pay a capital gains tax on it, even though you don't sell it. So you've got to find the money, borrow the money against the uh, the property, perhaps to pay the tax. I think that will be a sticking point. That's not the home, and we, we you know, because this was a this was a thing that Chalmers got got tripped up on, um, and he and he really does need to uh, improve his performance. Uh, he got tripped up on a on a Kochi interview one morning, you know, and I know it's first thing in the morning, but he was asked, "Will this include the family home?" And he said, "No, we're not contemplating that." And that's an open-ended answer when he really should have just jumped on it. So, that, so the media went bananas on that for a while, but yes, um, um, Elbow had to come out and scotch it. But um, uh, yeah, look, I understand that, but let's 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 get it. And, and, and I think most people understand this, that these changes will not be implemented unless the government is re-elected. Yeah. Um, but I suspect the tax on young, unrealised capital gains will never see the light of day. Yeah. No, certainly in the family home, that's been knocked over. Quick look at the New South Wales election, Jack. Now, I told you uh, last week that a mate of mine... Uh, 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 had been listening benefit, to Maurice Yemmer, I think, had the he? benefit of Maurice Yemmer, who is uh, something of a, an electoral soothsayer, and he ran through the nine very quickly. When we look at the when we look at the pendulum and the nine Labor wins, talking to another Labor person, um, <coughs> state state uh, former of, um, a political veteran, uh, on Friday they said, well, they might not get nine, but they only really need to get five, and that'll be. That'll be enough to give a minority government because the three Greens, you know, they're not going anywhere. Um, then it's not as if they're going to support the coalition. So we look through some of the seats. The, 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 the ones that Labor needs to win are all outer suburban seats, essentially in the west and southwest of Sydney. That includes yes. East Hills, which is uh, 
Well, Goulburn, uh, uh, I heard again, Goulburn, they reckon, is in the bag. Penrith in the bag. Willoughby won't come down to it because that's essentially a coalition or independent take out. This, uh, the Tweed, you know, I'm not even going to get involved in Northern Rivers. That could go either way and, and it always sort of does. Then we've got Holsworthy, Riverstone, Parramatta, all around that 6%. Uh, Oatley is another one, Camden at 7.3. That's where the election is going to swing, basically on the, the outer suburban Badgerich Creek at 9.7. And going to need a swing of about 6%. Yeah, 6% is going to get them very close. But as I say, even if they pick up just the five, they will be able to more, more likely be the party who can form minority government because the three Greens, presuming that they are re-elected, uh, will provide them with the numbers to get their uh, legislation through. Yeah. Nice so three months ago, I would have said, look, they're going to cruise in with this, but they haven't. They've just fallen a little bit flat of late, I think. Just seems that way, doesn't it? And and, and having spoken to a few Labor Party people on Friday about it, they they, they seem to think that, they'll, that they are still cruising a little bit. And... Um, uh, yes, it's um, it's uh, it, it's one of those things that we'll wait and see. They had the campaign launch, Labor's campaign launch, with the uh, elbow out there, uh, giving um, uh, giving uh, John Barillaro's name a good mention. And I'd suggest that any time John Barillaro's name gets mentioned, it would be a very good day for the opposition. Um, although Barrels did get uh, did get uh, um, uh, well, the, the inquiry into his. Um, um, appointment as uh, the New South Wales um, Trade Commissioner to New York, uh, that the the investigation, the ICAC investigation, concluded yesterday with no finding, adverse finding against him. Yeah, it's still it's still labours to lose, I think. Yeah, I think that's where we are. I think that's exactly right where we are. Now we're just going over to the states now, Jack. We're going to zoom across there. Um, uh, Pelosi uh, is having a bit of a problem with Biden over debt forgiveness, and she says it's not his job to do it. Can't do it. Illegal. Well, uh, this is before the Supreme Court at the moment. I think they've uh, they're done closing arguments. They've uh, done oral arguments, and uh, they'll be awaiting the decision. Mm. Um, uh, this is a, an action brought by, amongst other people, a number of the states to prevent the um, student debt forgiveness um, uh, process that Biden set in place by executive order. Um, and uh, th- there's no, there's, there's been no law to this effect passed through Congress. Um, I think that the argument on the substance is pretty good, um, and, and Nancy Pelosi certainly said, certainly thinks so. Um, she said back in July, the president can't do this. So that's not even discussion. Not everybody understands that, but the president can only postpone, delay, but not forgive. Um, and indeed, the Department of Education agreed with the, yeah, the real problem that. with this case is is that do the the plaintiffs have standing to make the, make the case? And that came up in the oral arguments. That is, have the people who are making the complaints to the court actually suffered, suffered some detriments? Okay, so let's look at the politics of this. Well, you know, the the Supreme Court will hand down a decision fairly soon, one would imagine. Yep. Uh, and it may well, by the looks of things, particularly if you've got the Federal Department of Education who said uh, that uh, 
the executive branch, the president, does not have the statutory authority to cancel, compromise, discharge or forgive on a blanket or mass basis, principal balances of student loans. Um, so if it goes the way Pelosi is suggesting it will go, that just means I think Joe Biden will be, will be you know, I, I don't think he will suffer any political indignity about it, um, that that... Um, uh, the, the the ones the, uh, the the recipients of the of the of the debt forgiveness will point a finger at the SCOTUS. They will. That's almost certain. Um, but mind you, if it goes through, uh, if if his process survives the court and continues, he may actually suffer a detriment because there's a hell of a lot of people in the country who will say, "Why are we paying for some other kid's college education?" Seventy percent of Americans don't go to college. Yeah, I understand that, and and we've talked about that when that when when uh, when Biden first made that announcement. You know that that there is it's politically fraught, but I think the way that it's going, uh, it will it will be seen as a bit of a boost for Biden, uh, and 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 if, if it's knocked over, it won't cause him any great harm, but it might no, well no, the, sort the, of the, solidify the that. The, young, the more harm the would be for him if it gets through. Yeah. yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, that's that, that's that's definitely it. So those people who thought they were ten grand uh, to the good may not be ten grand at all, but they'll be blaming the Supreme Court rather than Joe. Hmm. Which brings us to the polling, and and Donald Trump has surged in uh, GOP polling. Uh, he looks like the um, he looks like he's got DeSantis covered, forty five to forty one among Republican voters. DeSantis, of course, hasn't announced. Um, and then you look at some of the others on the list, Jack. Pence, who hasn't announced, getting going nowhere. Nikki Haley, uh, who has, uh, going absolutely nowhere. Uh, and Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he he hasn't announced either, although he does have a book out saying how much he loves America, which is a bit of a qualification there. Ghost written by the finest... Uh, Ghost rider he could find, um, but well, they, they, bloke, they're absolutely nowhere. Well, for a bloke who hasn't announced, uh, DeSantis is working very hard. Uh, he's got a book out as well. It's number one on That's Amazon. Right. Um, it's the best-selling, best-selling book in America at the moment. Um, this week he's been at the Reagan um, Library in California, and then I saw him making a big speech in Texas, uh, packed houses all the time. And the interesting thing hidden away in these polls is that. Um, uh, DeSantis has gained 13 points yeah. amongst Midwestern voters. That's really significant because when we're looking at this polling, it's so early, of course. We're still yeah. um, eight, nine months from the first primary. Uh, <clears throat> we're still looking at, at sort of association, you know, People know who Donald Trump is. One hundred percent of Americans know who Donald Trump. Love him or hate him, they know who he is. But one hundred percent of, uh, well, perhaps only sixty, seventy percent of people know who DeSantis is, and they may only just know the name. And there's not a lot, not a lot of knowledge or confidence there. And those things tend to change as we go. Um, uh, as I say, he's still still yet to announce his candidacy. You, you, but you don't think he's uh, he's having a look see though, do you? No, I don't. Uh, I think he's running as hard as he possibly can. But you look at that 13-point 13 13 point gain in the Midwest. 
really the only path back to the White House for the Republicans is through the Rust Belt. That's it. Exactly right. Um, They have to win states like uh, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, They have to. Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, Pennsylvania's, yeah, Midwest. Midwest, but only part of it's in the Midwest, I suppose. Yeah, big state, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, then of course we look at we look at Joe and uh, you know I've been talking a little while about this Jack America's grandpa he's doing pretty well with Democrat voters as well to the well, point where it, you cannot see anyone challenging him. Well, I think there's no other credible there's no credible challenger is the no, problem. No, if he announces he he will uh, he he will uh, he will go through uh, um, um, with uh, without any challenge. And I suspect he will announce. I mean, this is it took took him three goes to become president. He's not going to give up easily. <laughs> yeah. Look, it 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 look, the the uh, the debates. If we do get a Trump Biden debate again, of course. Look, and we talked about this. I think Biden thinks he matches up pretty well against Trump, and I think he's pretty right. You know, they've only had one contest, but he's but he's taken him taken him down, um, and uh, so. Yeah, I, I would think he would he would very much look forward to it to it to an opponent uh, to Trump as his opponent rather than DeSantis. Oh, I think absolutely. All right. Um, so yes, uh, uh, the main issues are the economy, but the economy's actually going okay. It's certainly going a lot better than a lot of European economies, and going a lot better than the Australian economy. Must be said. There's there's growth there. Good unemployment. Figures, uh, inflation seems to be coming down, unlike uh, where it might be in Australia or in Europe. Um, so he might be dealt. We don't know yet, but Joe Biden might be dealt with with some pretty good economic figures uh, as we go on to the, the end of the year. Yeah, uh, at the moment the figures look all right. The public perception of how the economy is going is very bad. Yeah, that's right. Well, it it is one of those things uh, done in the abstract when you're talking about just essentially one administration, one president, and then when you've got challenges, you've got to say, well, who's going to be better at this? Um, I haven't seen any polling on that. You would imagine some Americans or perhaps the majority think that Trump might be a better economic manager, but God only knows why, but that, you know, as that sort of business background sort of thing, you know. Um, I, I'm not sure that that stands up these days. I did notice that pa- part of part of that though is what happens on your watch, whether it's your doing or not. And and while Trump was president, people felt better off. There was a, a increase in um, in um, in income for uh, minority groups in particular, particularly blacks. Um, they felt like they were better off. Now whether that. Whether they're right or wrong in associating that with Trump, I think there's an element of that that they do. Yeah, I know what you're saying. And, and look, he, he, you know, to be fair, Trump got lucky in that the the economy was on an uptick. Um, yeah, cor- correlation uh, and causation uh, aren't the same thing. Yeah, that's know? right. Yeah. But that's that, that's but we're also dealing with perception. I did notice uh, uh, that Donald was the um, was a keynote uh, speaker at the CPAC at the mm. Republican CPAC. Uh, and um, uh, he talked about healthcare, Jack, as he was going to be a healthcare president, and he was going to be the president to avoid World War Three. And 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 you could almost hear hear the uh, the shouts of the shouts of triumph from uh, Moscow and Beijing at the same time. 
Yeah, well, um, CPAC has de- deteriorated into um, it's just the only Trumpers of the conservative part of the America that are left there. Well, that's you know, you, but he was basically setting it, laying out his credentials as an isolationist, and um, and, and and so you would think, you know, there may be there may be a Maybe a bit of uh, Russian money spilling into the so- into the uh, Facebook ads, Jack. Again this time, because yeah, yeah. uh, they'd uh, be very keen to see him president again. Vladimir yeah. would be, and there probably will always votes president in being an too. isolationist in America. Yeah. All right. Um, look, we 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 haven't touched on this. This is the Fox News and the Dominion voting machine case. There are a number of actions that the Dominion. Uh, the Dominion voting systems has brought against a number of individuals, including Rudy Giuliani, uh, a number of media organisations, including uh, including uh, One American News Network and Newsmax. But the one going on at the moment is the one with Fox News, um, and uh, and we've seen a number of texts and and emails released from uh, Fox News big stars, people like Sean Hannity. Uh, Laura Ingram, um, uh, um, uh, help me out with the other guy. What's his name? Tucker Carlson. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's very clear they didn't believe a word of it, Jack. Are they, they, they in a bit of cabinet solidarity as well? Well, I think it's pretty clear from from the the material that we've seen that none of them believed that the election was stolen, <laughs> but they were prepared to um, uh, run along with the argument for a little while, at least on the television. Just asking questions. Just yeah. asking questions. Yeah, um, and, so, and they were fearful. You know, the, the the really important thing for me here is that they were they were fearful, genuinely fearful. They they actually saw their viewer numbers decline after Fox News, who'd invested a, a lot of money uh, in um, uh, in electoral assessment and, and, and analysis, had had decided uh, that uh, and they got absolutely right that Arizona was had turned blue mm. um, and called that, and that caused great consternation. Trump, um, Trump apparently got on the phone to uh, to the Murdochs and asked them to take, asked them to change it. Uh, and we know that uh, Tucker Carlson was saying, you know, it just makes us look bad. The share price had gone down, all these sorts of things. Um, but it's not news, is it, Jack? It's not. It's really just opinion. We were dealing with opinion, so I, I think they have a you know First Amendment defence that's fairly strong. Um, but um, but we are just dealing with opinion rather than news reporting in the case of people like Carlson. Yeah, uh, I don't think the Dominion case looks all that strong to me um, because of that, because people are just giving their opinion. But it's certainly embarrassing for Fox News. It's also a misunderstanding um, from, uh, from Trump as to uh, how Fox or News Corp behaves, they might be prepared to support you, but only as long as they think you're going to win. That's um, right. If they think you're going to lose, um, uh, the history of Rupert Murdoch is, well, he, you're yesterday's man. Well, how do you see someone like Mike Lindell or indeed Rudy Giuliani who are facing the same actions? You know, we're talking about one, I think it's $1.4 US billion actions against those individuals as well. And they're going to have to. It's very different than the Fox News case because they're going to have to basically. You've got not, not Al uh, uh, 
but the the crazy the crazy uh, lawyer who was looking after them. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, let's leave her aside. She might have some problems. I don't think Fox does. Yeah, okay. Fox, well, Fox, Fox had some problems with being with it slightly being embarrassed, but that's just it. Um, uh, but there's a problem with all of this. We used to all watch the same news shows, right? There were very few news shows. You know, back in the days when there were three television stations in Australia, um, there's been a great siloing of media ever since. You know, um, these days with social media, you can only you, you can arrange your life so you only get the news you agree with. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and, and consumers. That's, that's not at the end of the day, consumers are the ones who who, who can uh, can make uh, news networks uh, sink or swim. Yeah. All right. Now, a question for me from one of your question. in the old days, the editorial staff of a newspaper would. Um, uh, say you know, the boss would listen to what the bean counters were saying about how this is affecting our viewership or our readership and our bottom line, but the the editorial staff were kept very separate from that. Well, I think Murdoch is, is quoted as saying Rupert Murdoch that is is quoted as saying that he he thought the um, he thought the uh, the election truther stuff was was pretty crazy. I think that was the was the quote, um, but. I think you'll find that he doesn't have a great deal of involvement editorially. I mean, there, there, there's, you know, this idea, and people have it, that uh, that Rupert will send out a memo every day saying these are the talking points and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's absolute rubbish. Um, and uh, and I can I can tell people that for a fact. Um, uh, the. <coughs> There may be people who think that, that what they're about to say or report is going to please Rupert Murdoch or Lachlan Murdoch, and that may sort of influence the way they the way they report news. But it's not as if it's a directive. And uh, and I just wanted to talk about the case when um, the Wall Street Journal um, uh, broke the story and continued to run hard with it on the. Uh, uh, the woman who who had developed uh, the uh, the blood testing uh, kit and turned it into a uh, turn it into a big money maker or that ultimately lost billions and billions of dollars. Um, she and others tried to persuade Rupert not to run these stories, and he just said, "No, I'll leave that to editorial." So these things, mm. you know, these things are you know people will try. Uh, and, and influence Rupert Murdoch, but it doesn't really work. He is a newspaper man, you know, he got ink running through the veins, as they say. Now, question... And, f- and, and the thing to remember about this, not just Murdoch, but all of the great newspaper proprietors or media proprietors, they understand one thing, that they're going to be around for a long time. The person who wants the favour, who's the current president or whoever, they'll be gone. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're just a temporary. They're just something I'm dealing with this week and this year. But they'll be gone, and I'll still be here. Well, I think that uh, I think there was an angry call came from the Trump camp uh, to Fox over the calling of Arizona, and uh, uh, fairly fairly uh, brusquely dealt with Jack. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, um, you'll be gone. You'll be gone, but I'll still be here. You know, a question. There's a question for me from one of uh, from one of your listeners. <laughs> It wasn't so much a question for you. It was a conversation I was having over a beer um, uh, last week with a, um, a very successful United States lawyer um, based here in Hong Kong for a long time, and I was just wishing that you were on the other side of him, 
enjoying a beer with us to hear this because he said to me, he says, you know, Trump has been the best foreign policy president we've had in the United States for 50 years. And I was just wishing I could see your face when that was said. I I cannot agree with that. I mean, basically, he'd seen Europe basically stripped back to a point where, you know, Western Europe was in open conflict with him. Um, I, I cannot buy that at all. So does he just does he think that Reagan, uh, that Trump was a better foreign policy president than Reagan? Well, I mean, that's what I see because fifty years takes us back to Richard Nixon, right? Um, look, and, and, I could make I could man an argument for Nixon, although Nixon did extend the Vietnam War, um, <laughs> and and of course Ronald Reagan had Iran Contra in the latter part of his presidency. Um, it just reminds me of a, of a wonderful story, actually, that, that um, uh, when Gorbachev met Reagan in, in Iceland um, and they met at, um, at a place called, uh, I think it's, I, I, I might be able to or probably mispronounce this, but this was, this was done at, at the former French consulate called Hoshi, I think it is, um, <laughs> and... The, the, the building itself had a, it was built in the, in the first decade of the 20th century and had a history of, of being um, uh, in, in, infected with ghosts, at least the ghost of a young woman who may have been the subject of a murder or a suicide. It's not very clear on the reporting. But uh, for a period there, it was the, also the offices or was the office of the British consulate in uh, Reykjavik. And, uh, and uh, the, the British Consular General uh, didn't want to stay in the place because he kept hearing rattling chains and doors and so forth. There's also a story about it being uh, uh, built on a... Um, uh, built on a, a Viking a burial ground. So it's supposed to be a haunted house. Gorbachev and, uh, and Reagan assemble there. Uh, Gorbachev says, well, I'm happy to reduce our ICBMs and nuclear arsenal by 50%. And Reagan, who was who hated nuclear weapons, just said, well, why don't we get rid of the lot? And <laughs> panic ensued. Can you imagine the Pentagon? They would have been absolutely just running around. And In the end, um, the, st- the sticking point was the U.S. development of Star Wars, which really wasn't anything at that time, but but uh, Gorbachev wouldn't sign off on uh, on wholesale um, uh, nuclear weapons disarmament while Reagan continued to pr- pr- to promote Star Wars, known as SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which is basically you know um, uh, setting up missile defense programs in space. Um, and uh, and so uh, it was while it was a significant, significant, ultimately would lead to significant reductions in nuclear arms across the world. Um, no decision was 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 made at that time. And Reagan, as I say, Reagan just said, "Oh, why don't we just get rid of all of them?" Yeah. And and was prepared to do it. Was pre- prepared to do it. And the sticking point was SDI. Um, yeah. Look, if you're going to Josh, Josh's argument about Trump being a, the, the best foreign policy president in 50 years, resolved around this. He said he got China right, and I can tell you that even the bedwetting Democrat, uh, uh, Democrats, Americans who I know in, in who spent a long time in Hong Kong and China will reluctantly agree that that's right. They will tell you that the, the State Department has been getting China wrong for 30 years. Didn't get Russia very right, did he? Uh, he, they, he? Josh said he got NATO right, that is, make them pay the money, 
uh, and he got the Abraham Accords right. And I think they're actually they're, the, those three things are actually all true. Um, whether that makes him the best foreign policy president, that's for others to decide, not me. No, no, I wouldn't say so. And 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 basically, you know, the combative relationship with with NATO, and we can talk about them not not investing enough in their in their military or um, their treaty obligations. Um, <coughs> there simply wasn't enough done by Trump. There, he 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 basically was attacking Western nations and cozying up. To Putin, you, 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 we, we, we will surely never, we should never forget the moment where he, where he chose um, the word of Putin over his own security agencies uh, in regard to the, you know, questions put to to Putin about our <coughs> Russian involvement in the twenty sixteen election. At the risk of being accused of whataboutism, if we're looking for an example of cozying up to. To, to Putin, um, the um, uh, the on mic when uh, Obama thought it was off, where he says to Medvedev, "Just tell Vlad that after the election, I'll be allowed to be more flexible." Is the worst thing I've ever seen from a oh, US look, president. You'll get no argument from me that. on that either. And and don't forget that Putin actually didn't move against Ukraine. He is quite happy to take Crimea uh, on Obama's watch. Um, and uh, and he didn't move against Ukraine until after Trump left. So I don't know that. The argument that Trump is a is a Putin stooge is a pretty poor one. Well, <laughs> he's on the record when he was asked when he was asked about um, um, a Russian influence on the twenty sixteen election, which is a matter of record, right? He he is on the record of saying, "I choose him, I chose his word above my security agencies." I mean, that's as simple as that. He, well, he kowtows to tyrants all the time. That that was his he, – he, he has this sort of penis envy around them. I mean, you just simply cannot exclude that stuff. And, of course, then he jumped on Air Force One and by the time he got to the United States, he said, oh, I didn't mean it. I actually got my, got my verbs. I got my negatives confused and all this sort of stuff because he realised it was just a disaster. I can certainly see why he didn't have much trust in his security people at that stage, um, given that they were. Um, oh, so, uh, so 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 you just you just ask him, you know, with, with a translator in the room, you ask him, and and he'll tell you the answer, and you accept that. I mean, that I mean, look, I, I just I just cannot begin to understand why anyone could say that that, that Trump was a decent foreign policy president. Any anything that sort of came his way, he was. You know, any crisis that might have arisen during his presidency, I guess maybe China and maybe Russia went, oh, well, we don't want to try this guy on because he's a lunatic. That's not, that's not a good rationale, right? That's not a good rationale for good foreign policy. This guy might be a lunatic. So what well, we're going to do is we're going to have him in there. You know, do you remember that first time he, had a, he, had, he, was, he was greeted in China, Jack? And they put on a, a I don't know, eighty-five course banquet, and and he came out saying, and they would have told him, "This is more. This is more courses than we've ever had for any other president." So he goes away. You know, they just knew how to fluff him up. Yeah, yeah, you got to be well, smart to be in this, well, in this all, business. All the people I know who spent a lot of time here will tell you that the State Department have been getting it wrong. He got it closer to being right than anybody else for, has for a long I, time. I, I don't even know what that means, mate. I mean, I don't because, even know what that means. They misunderstood, yeah. they've misunderstood China for 30 years. They've been the people who've been duchess by the Chinese with the banquets, etc., etc. He at least treated them um, 
just like a building competitor. He's a building developer. Um, but that was a much better way to treat the Chinese than had been I, done I, I, for I don't 30 see, years. I don't, I don't see any difference from him, from George, uh, George H. Bush, for example, who had to deal with uh, Tiananmen Square. I don't see much difference with, with Clinton, who was mainly, again, a bit of an isolationist, not all that interested in foreign policy. Uh, and a bit like Obama in the same in the same respect, and, and George W. Well, I don't think we'd ever put him on the list of um, uh, foreign policy experts, but but w- they were dealing with China as as a, as, as a pro- provider of, of consumer goods, so they were dealing with them on, a, on an economic basis. So I, I don't understand anything that's happened there, and of course, when no. the, the Trump did that was any different. You know, other than eat an eighty-five banquet, course banquet, rather than a seventy-five course banquet. I don't, what I, they, I don't see any difference there. Okay, uh, well, just let, just let me explain it to you how, how it's perceived here. For thirty years, um, the State Department had the view that if you give China what it wants economically, um, it will turn into um, uh, uh, Sweden with uh, with a billion people with almond-shaped eyes. Um, it will become uh, a, a more westernised sort of country, have a, have a more western system of government. That was wrong right from the start, but they persisted with that idea for 30 years. Uh, Trump actually just stood up to them a little bit and just pushed back in what a respect? little bit on them economically. In what and respect? that was the smartest thing that's been done in on what China respect? When did he years. stand up to When did he stand up to the Chinese? Because, he, because he started to push back on the trade issues. Uh, he, he was babbling about a trade surplus. I mean, that, that was never going to correct and indeed never has. And uh, so, so we can't look at anything measurable and we can, and we can just see him ranting and raving about trade surpluses and why don't we make these things in America. You want to know why they don't make? Because people won't buy a $12,000 iPhone, Jack. I mean, yeah, no, yeah. nothing has changed other than he had a few tantrums. And, and in the very beginning of the, uh, in the, very beginning of the pandemic, he was all over G. I mean, he was saying, oh, no, 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 I think he's got it under control. He's been great. He's, we've been talking, all this stuff. And then and then it really, he, he so badly underestimated the pandemic that uh, that he had to just turn and, and be belligerent towards China. Mm. Well, uh, as, yeah. as I said, I was just sorry that you weren't there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it would have been on. <laughs> it would have been on. <laughs> all right. Now, we've got this thing. This is an obsession of yours, Jack. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders in uh, and, and ESG, which I'm not even stand, I'm not sure what it stands for, but you'll tell me. Um, uh, it, it's sort of major driver in corporate America. Yeah, I think the tide's turning against both of these bad ideas. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> we've got some reporting here. Um, um, that, that would indicate that there are no benefits to be had from ESG investing. Is that that, that, that correct, Jack? Well, not, neither, from neither. Neither DEI, which is the diversity, equity, inclusion. What's ESG? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't actually produce results um, uh, that you can that you can quantify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ESG um, uh, is a bad investment idea. Um, but at the same time. If, if there's no benefit, then there's no loss. I mean, this, this is what I, when I read, read this report earlier and, and I just think, like, okay, so it just depends on how you look at this. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, you were saying, and when we've got this figure here last year, tech stocks fell by more than 30%. 
while the energy sector, including oil and gas firms, gained nearly 60%. Well, why was that, Jack? Was that due to ESG? Sorry? What, what, why, why did the energy sector, why did stocks in the energy sector rise in 2022? Because people need energy. Well, <laughs> yes, but there are a couple of other things, aren't there, Jack? Namely, the invasion of of Ukraine, one of um, and and Russia, who were who were big energy suppliers themselves. Yes, uh, and so that is that drives that that drives that that rise in energy sector stocks because all of a sudden prices had increased, hadn't they, Jack? As a result of the invasion, in terms yeah. of oil and gas, prices went through the roof, didn't but, they? But but that that's not going away. People are going to need energy. Well, during the pandemic, Jack, you know, the oil price dropped into the negative. Yeah, because people weren't driving to work. Because, yeah. well, <laughs> that's how the market responded to it. And this is the very early stages of the pandemic. Um, you know, it was literally negative, a negative about 15 US dollars per barrel briefly there in 2020. So, so what I'm saying is, you know, if you're looking at these things selectively, maybe – you know, you're saying, well, energy stocks, uh, you know, um, and, uh, fossil fuel-based stocks and so forth, they went through the roof, um, uh, <clears throat> but they went through the roof for a reason. Uh, <clears throat> and and I dare say that they won't be going through the roof this year again. I mean, when we look at 2023, we'll look at yeah, the price I, of I oil. think you're misunderstanding how both DEI and ESG work. Uh, ESG is supposed to work this way is that, the people who are making the investment choices are not supposed to look just at what sort of return they get for their investors. They're supposed to look at things through a social lens, through an environmental and an social and governance See, I, I lens. I fully understand. And decide, I know what, and decide I know what you're talking about. a good thing about. to invest in, mm. not just look at the returns. Um, and that's a bad in, that's a bad approach in my view, and I think, it's, I think the tide is turning against it. Okay. Well, we'll see. I'll tell you what we will do, Jack. We'll have a look at the uh, we'll have a look at energy stocks uh, going forward in the twenty twenty three as a bit of a as a bit of a guide and compare them twenty twenty two, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty, and see where we're going with all of that. All right. Um, yes. It, look, it is an issue. I understand. I mean, you, you, if you are looking after shareholder, um, uh, if you are looking after share shareholder value, then obviously the biggest return is what you should be aiming for. But there surely must be some ethical considerations too, Jack. Otherwise, well, we'd plough all their market is, into East African slavery. This is this is the Jim Chalmers approach, that he knows better than the market does as to what people should be investing in. And I think that's wrong. Well, when's he ever said that? Didn't you read his 5,000-word um, uh, um, uh, essay? <laughs> I have a life, but he didn't say that. He didn't say I know better than the markets. He's he's talking about uh, markets, I suppose, responding to or governments responding to challenges within markets, and and we can contest that. But he wasn't saying I know better than markets. Markets no, will personally. always respond to profit first and foremost. Hmm. But you know, like I said to you, if if we didn't have some ethical considerations, you know, we'd still be investing in East African slavery. Mm. <coughs> um, some, people, some people are still investing in African. Well, there's, there's still a fair trade going on, but basically, um, um, you know, um, uh, as, as it as it uh, as East African slavery 
uh, came across the world and into the United States and into the Caribbean and into South America. Um, uh, pretty grim stuff and some long-term social consequences there that are still un- largely unresolved. Meanwhile, in Iran, Jack, terrible story, 1,200 schoolgirls or more have been poisoned in attacks in at least 26 schools, at least 10 of them in Iran. The first known case was reported at a school in the city of Qom when 18 schoolgirls fell ill and were taken to hospital. Uh, since then, at least 58 schools in eight provinces have been affected, according to local media. It's a lot more than the original headline figure. But um, what is going on there, Jack? And, it, and it's it's always schoolgirls, and and, um, uh, and and it's a poison that, that the, the Iranian officials, for whatever reason, aren't able to identify. Um, interestingly, the Ayatollah has said that he wants whoever's organising this to be executed. Um, it's, so perhaps, so perhaps yeah. it is disgruntled people from um, his organisations who are doing this because they've lost the battle on the hijab and they're seeking to punish people. I think that's a really good uh, summary of it, Jack. Yeah, the, the, the Deputy Health Minister, Iran's Deputy Health Minister, Yunus Panahi, ooh, I'm maybe a relative, said uh, it was, quote, evident that some people wanted all schools, especially girls' schools, to be closed down, although he later said, (laughs) clarified his remarks, that his remarks had been misunderstood. Um, It is very similar, Jack. Uh, You may recall this, that uh, there were a number of of uh, schools in Afghanistan uh, where schoolgirls were poisoned uh, by the Taliban. Taliban always said, (laughs) yeah. It really wasn't us, but there was no other explanation for it. Um, all we know is that the toxic gas contains nitrogen. Um, school students report of sometimes a, a rotting type fish smell um, and, uh, and others a smell of tangerine. Um, but, yeah, very, very nasty. And it would seem to be, I mean, I, I, I'm going to say it's not state-sanctioned, Jack. Would, would that be a, a reasonable summary? It's hard to know whether yeah. it was state-sanctioned or it's disgruntled people within the organisations that revolve around um, the theocracy there um, who went ahead and did it anyway without being sanctioned. All right. Um, in Ukraine now, uh, we're at... I don't a- know whether you saw this video. Um, it was very good. Um, the, the Russian Foreign Minister, Lavrov, was um, at a, a conference in India... Um, and the Indians have been quite supportive of Russia through the whole Ukraine things. Uh, and he, answering his first question, and, and he says, the war we are trying to stop was launched against us. Um, and the Indian audience, who I think he thought would be supportive, uh, were rolling around the floor laughing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, Lovely piece of video. Yes. Uh, yeah, the war we trying to was launched against us. Uh, it's a nice little twist from Valery. Valery Lavrov, isn't it? It uh, is, yeah. Um, Valery Lavrov, who must, in, in his quiet moments, think, I used to be able to go all over the world and I really can't go to too many places now <laughs> without, without uh, running the risk of uh, being clapped in irons. Um, the front, uh, I saw some news reports last night, Jack. Um, uh, it, it, the uh, Bakhmut is, uh, is the city. That they're, that they're fighting over. Uh, clearly, the fighting is um, uh, very intense and very bloody. Um, um, and Bakhmut itself 
uh, it could be Russia's first gain, uh, really, since uh, since the advances uh, in the early part of last year. Um, but all they'll get is a smouldering ruin of a city. Yeah, it's a building by building fight by the look of it. Uh, yeah, very very nasty, of course. And uh, uh, I do hear the, in the reports there. Uh, of course, the, the Ukrainians have been saying for some time to NATO, to the US, can you give us some joint strike fighters um, to uh, to help out with? And the Americans have always said no. They continue to to say no, but they do have two. Ukrainian Air Force pilots being trained, Jack, over there to uh, to see how quickly they can come up to speed uh, and 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 uh, use this uh, high tech weaponry. Yes, uh, and, interesting and of course, stuff. And of course, again, like the the tanks, even more than more so than the tanks. Or more so, you can't yeah. you can't just jump in and turn the key and take <laughs> off. What's this know? button do? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you can't you can't do that. So it's going to take a little while. It's the same with the tanks. You would expect. The full impact of, of uh, the M1 Abram tank coming into into the you know, into into Ukraine on the eastern front that won't occur probably till the middle of this year at the earliest because you do need a bit of training. Um, I don't think they've even arrived in in Ukraine as yeah. well, but it's, they're faster. It, 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 they've got longer range. It's not like jumping into a European um, uh, hire car and finding that when you put the indicators on, the wipers go on. That's you know? right, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, no, it's because basically you're just either blowing yourself up or blowing something else up that you don't want to blow up. So it takes a little while. Um, Jack, the Northern Ireland Protocol, just explain what, what that is for us, please, mate. Since it, uh, not a lot of people would know this is a way for goods to pass backwards and forwards across the border between the Republic of Ireland uh, and the uh, and, and Northern Ireland. Because, um, because be, ERA or the Republic is uh, is um, a part of the European part of the European Union, which has very strict controls on quarantine uh, uh, customs and quarantine and what have you. And Northern Ireland, it was all beautiful and seamless, uh, not so long back, but with Brexit. Now there's the problem. Yeah. So, that, so the solution essentially has been, it's, it's sort of a, a two-lane system. That is, goods that are just going into Northern Ireland can travel freely, as they have been uh, since uh, the UK has been in the EU, and goods that are transiting through Northern Ireland to go to, to the UK uh, are subject to a kind of a customs arrangement. And, of course, the whole, the whole idea of customs, this, this sort of symbolism or customs checks and things, are, you know, is pretty unpleasant given the, given the history of the Troubles, Jack. Um, and uh, so the, the, the business of having officialdom con- con- conducting searches on the borders is a bit, is a bit awful uh, there for the Northern Irish. Yeah, it's uh, not an easy problem to fix, is it? Um, it isn't, uh, and it is one of those issues around Brexit that really everyone just thought, well, we'll just get Brexit done and we'll sort this out later. And it's still a bit of a running sore. Without wanting to stereotype a nation, Jack, um, the Irish are great smugglers, of course, aren't they? And um, uh, have been for centuries, if I may say so, around the well, at least one good one century around the construction of, of Northern Ireland. Even people who shop. Um, for, uh, who, who live in the Republic and want to shop 
and uh, save a bit of uh, GST because I think the uh, the Republic's GST rate is higher than the UK's or v- VAT. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, go and do their shopping over the border. It's only a two hour drive from um, uh, from from uh, Dublin anyway. Yeah, uh, only for essential supplies like booze and cigarettes and things like that. <laughs> great smugglers. The Mexicans are great smugglers too. <laughs> I'm not casting any aspersions on, on the Irish, of course, but, um, you know, uh, 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 political circumstances have, have perhaps rendered them into great smugglers. Does this provide Boris Johnson with um, with uh, something to hit Rishi Senek with, Jack? Or is uh, well, Boris the, 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 a bit poisoned himself? The distinguished journalist uh, Andrew Neil thinks, um, uh, and he used to employ Boris. I think at one stage. I think Andrew Neil was still was chairman of the Spectator while Boris was the editor, um, uh, and so he knows Boris very well. Um, he thinks that Johnson wants a second chance at, at being prime minister and will be pretty ruthless in its pursuit. But the window of opportunity is narrow. He has to make his new move between now and sometime before the next election, and he's got to leave himself enough late 24. time to... Mm. Late 24, I think, actually can be held in early 25, but yeah. uh, he's got One to do day. it fairly soon because, he's look, he's just not going to enjoy being opposition leader, is he, for, what, five years? No, no. So one to watch, I think. All right, and uh, the the Northern Irish Protocol is just one of those sort of Brexit mistakes that we'll just charge on and do anyway. Um, all right, there's a bit of a farmer's revolt. Are the, are the farmers revolting, Jack? Oh, yeah, they should shout. Yeah, uh, yet, yet another farmer's revolt. This is becoming this is quite Belgium, common. Yeah. Um, uh, this time in, uh, in Brussels, uh, 2,700 tractors uh, from the Flanders region um, uh, protesting at moves to cut nitrogen emissions. Mm-hmm. No future without farmers, read one of the banners. Flemish farmers are up in arms over a green push by the government of their Dutch-speaking region aimed at slashing nitrogen emissions from fertilisers and livestock. How do you, <laughs> do you slash nitrogen emissions from livestock, Jack? Uh, by cutting the numbers of livestock. Oh, I say what they mean. Oh, yes, okay. Uh, the production and use of nitrogen fertilisers generates climate warming, greenhouse gas emissions, as does livestock waste. Do they have? Uh, are they making their own fertilisers in in uh, Belgium, Jack? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know the no, I'm not sure what they do in 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 uh, in the Netherlands either, the low countries. So um, I'll have a look into that. Where most of that's being made in Europe. It's not been made in the third world. This is what we found with Sri Lanka, didn't we? That that uh, they really are at the behest of uh, of uh, European, essentially European countries. Ukraine is a huge provider of nitrogen fertilisers, for example, Jack. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, the, the difficulty the environmental movement's going to face is that. You can't feed enough people to feed that's the right. world without yeah. using this stuff. Yeah, no, that's right. So you, uh, there's, there's really no way around that. You can use organic fertilisers, and as the people of Sri Lanka found out, they didn't have enough stock of organic fertilisers, but you will never be able to get the same crop yields with organic uh, fertilisers like manures and what have you. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing from Lawrence Balcom on all that, Jack. And when we start talking about farming, he likes to weigh in because he is he is one of those farmers. 
not a revolting farmer, a farmer all the same. South Africa, Jack, on the verge of collapse over rolling blackouts. It's been going on for a long time now in South Africa. Yeah, it's looking worse, worse and worse at the moment, I've got to say. Um, the head of, um, uh, what's the power company called, ESCOM, yes. uh, um, uh, resigned um, this week uh, in part because he had no support from the government. In fact, one of the ministers said that ESCOM, by not attempting not attending to load shedding, is effectively agitating for the overthrow of the state. Um, load shedding is the thing that they do when the power is not there's not enough power. They um, they shed power to um, which means cut off the power to yes. about sixty percent of the Brownouts, consumers yeah. mm. um, and leave it for essential services. Um, uh, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa declared a national state of disaster um, just uh, just less than a month ago, um, and. Um, uh, and, that, and that's just these sort of rolling brownouts that can last in big cities, manufacturing, homes, etc. hospitals, well, well, presumably have generators, but some may not, uh, lasting up to 12 hours a day. Yeah, so a, a lot of companies are putting in their own generating capacity, um, uh, you know, albeit uh, some, you know, part, might be partly solar, you know, all that sort of stuff, but um, with backup. Um, so that they can keep their businesses open. Um, there is a real problem with uh, corruption, really, that's causing this. Um, and, and failure to plan, really. Failure to plan. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's always a problem. But people have that problem around the world. What they've got is a, is a sort of a – South Africa is turning into a little bit of a gangster state. Um, people have lost faith in the rule of law, so it's every every person for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have extraordinary things like they have a real problem with keeping the uh, the power lines open because uh, people will come along with a trench digger and dig up the power to steal the copper wire. They have a trouble they have trouble getting coal into the f- coal fired power stations. South Africa digs its own coal, um, but as the trucks um, are, are driven to the power station, there will be collusion with the truck driver and the top quality toll, toll will be ta- a coal will be taken out of the truck and replaced with rubbish coal to, to take to the power station. And this causes further um, uh, production problems. Um, and then there are sabotage attempts to get more work for maintenance, etc., etc. It's corrupt from end to end. The, the chap who was running ESCOM, um, after he resigned, um, he had someone put cyanide in his coffee. Wow. That is standing. That is sounding like failed state stuff, isn't it? It's, it's more a gangster state than a failed state. Mm, mm. All right. Well, we're moving to seamlessly into energy because uh, Shell's new boss, Vale Sowan, I think I've got that right. Wail Sowan could be, uh, has said that uh, cutting oil and gas output would be bad for consumers. I am of a firm view, he said, that the world will need oil and gas for a long time to come. As such, cutting oil and gas production is not healthy. Well, Jack, you would say that, wouldn't he? He probably would. He would. Don't tell the Greens. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what, that, that's probably designed, again, not non-ESG sort of remark is to is to say well this is this is what Shell will be doing we will be 
seeking to explore. We will be seeking to uh, to mine gas and uh, and and uh, and oils and, and basically I, I, fossil. I was watching Adam Band on the television last night, and he was talking about we can't have any. Um, uh, you know, there's that. no can be no future in Australia for for oil and gas and for coal. And I, I was just thinking about half of our coal export exports uh, are metallurgical coal, coking coal. That's right. Coal that's used to make steel. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so you can drive a car and have a fridge and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, what do the Greens think is going to happen to all of that? Well, you know, they, they, they walk a lot, Jack. They don't, they don't need cars as much as, as badly as we do. Yes, I know. I saw the interview and I saw a very nervous fellow, you know, um, uh, Adam. Adam was very, very nervous. He's under the pump. She's a very fine interviewer, the 7.30 host, and uh, and she gave him a bit of a slap every now and then, and uh, he was just glad it was all over. It's a position that, you know, it's just unsustainable. The Greens go with this unsustainable... To, 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 to use one of their favourite words. Uh, well, yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> but and that, he actually exports one of our favourites, and that is, the, you know, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And he was still, oh, no, we're not looking for perfection. We don't want perfection. We just want something, you know, you, you, you simply can't wind down major industries, major export industries. You can't just wind them down overnight. Now, some of these some of these coal mines, including Clive Palmer, as far as I can see, Clive Palmer, you know, can go to buggery anyway. I'm not too. I'm not too uh, upset about the environment minister's uh, 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 Tanya Plibersek making that decision based on science, based on a scientific view. But this idea that we have to, sh- to, to, to that we can can no longer have um, uh, further gas or coal exploration in this country is just bizarre to me. Mm. Quite bizarre. Anyway, um, <clears throat> all right, so we'll move on to sport, Jack. The Dolphins, you know what their full name is, Jack? The Red Cliff Dolphins Rugby League Football Club. Mm-hmm. And it has a long history uh, in playing in Queensland and growing man work weeping openly uh, when the Dolphins uh, came out and really just... Uh, just blew the uh, roosters away in the second half for for a first up win in their very first game in the NRL. It doesn't often happen that sort of thing, does it? Well, um, well, maybe, maybe the West Coast might have. The West Coast and the Crows win their first games. I don't remember. Hello, Melbourne Storm won their first game. What won the flag in their first season, mate? Hmm. So the Dolphins have that to live up to. Um, uh, but yes, I, I did see some of some of the Queensland Artie Beats, and there's so many so many guys have gone through that. Uh, so many great players in rugby league have gone through that club. It, it, it's good to see. It does create a buy um, because there are now I think 19 sides in the competition. Very long season. That's the other thing about the NRL. And you you would say if you're a Rooster supporter, well, they generally start a bit slowly anyway. Um, yeah, what what the NRLs needed is a second team in Brisbane. Oh yeah, it's 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 kind of well overdue and it was supposed to be dealt with by, you know, the Gold Coast side, but that was almost a separate thing. So the Gold Coast Titans are reasonably well established in the competition now. Um, Melbourne, the, go- the Gold Coast is a little bit of the Gold Coast being a place where sports franchises go to die. Isn't yeah, it? there is a little bit of that. Um, yeah, the Gold Coast Suns have really never kicked off. 
but I think they've got the right sort of structures there now. Um, it is that sort of growth corridor, um, and of course, like Western Sydney for the AFL, it's it's somewhere where there'll be sort of battlegrounds for allegiances in, in the various footy codes. Now, well done to the Dolphins. I noticed the Melbourne Storm had a very good win against Parramatta, uh, Parramatta at home, and maybe uh, the Earls are starting slowly, but that's a pretty good sign from uh, from them. And of course, uh, the Panthers, the uh, Premier's last. A year they were beaten, uh, beaten by a point. So the NRL started, Jack, and it's barely the first week of March. And of course, it won't finish until the very end of September, if not the first week of October. It's a hell of a long season, mate, to be bashing and crashing into people and very, very fit and strong people at pace. Um, and uh, a lot can change over the journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a too long a season, but the, the people become uh, wedded to the idea of getting the, um, the the television money. So that's why it's got to run so long. Yeah, and uh, of course we uh, celebrated the uh, the great win of uh, of the Australian women's cricket team uh, who won in South Africa. We did that last week, and uh, the men came out. I thought it was a terrific turnaround. Um, and to win in India is always hard. But to win that third test after the performance of the second test, thought it was terrific. Steve Smith uh, led the way. A very good uh, 60 from Usman Kawaja in the first dig. Uh, Travis Head batted beautifully in the second to, to give him the win by nine wickets. And Nathan Lyon, well, how good is he? Um, he just popped up and took a lousy 11 for 99. Match figures off about 35 overs. Hmm. So it's pretty clear to me that the Australians have got the ability, but their preparation um, uh, and their approach was all wrong for the first two tests. I think there's a, you know, they, they talked about this six years in the planning and all this sort of stuff. I think they just became obsessed, like everyone does, about wickets, about the pitches. And it's hard not to because they're bloody awful. Um, you know, the, But you've just got to play them. Got, both tides have got to play on it, you know? Yeah, well, India won the toss. Uh, and batted, uh, the wicket was spitting and running along the ground from about uh, from about the third over. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the fifth ball of the uh, of the match went through the top. Yeah, that's right. And and that was after um, Indora Indora got the um, got the right to host it because and I'm just trying to think of the Indian city that Dar es Salaam Dar es Salaam was going to host it, but the pitch was not to scratch. So you got to go. Gee, I wonder what that was like. Mm. Uh, no, I just thought it was a really gutsy win from Australia, who fielded really well too. So their fielding has been has been a bit been a bit up and down. A few catches going down, um, not everyone sort of concentrating. And so I, I, I thought you know Smith took a blinder at leg slip. Uh, Kawaja, who's not known for his uh, catching necessarily, took a, a ripper at mid wicket. Uh, I just thought that was a very gutsy performance, and and it can't be uh, can't be underestimated the fact that this, their skipper had had to go back to Australia to basically um, uh, um, see his mother is in palliative care, and they would have known, you know, that they're pretty staunch behind him. They would have known that uh, that he was in pain, and yeah, I, I just thought it was a terrific result. 
Yeah, um, but compare that to compare that to how they approached the tour at the beginning. Um, the preparation was poor. I don't know, like, you know, well, whether you play a practice match is not. Um, um, they took the wrong team. They took blokes who weren't fit. They took a, a left arm leg spinner who wasn't up to the job, and that had to replace him halfway through. Um, that tells me that they went in there with, spinner, yeah, uh, yeah, with yeah. a hubris problem. Yeah, they were, over, uh, well, they were overrating they, they, their ability. They got the selection wrong. Uh, they got the selection wrong at Nagpur too. So they they dropped head, which is just ridiculous. I know head's got. Oh, look, you're looking at sort of six year old figures in in terms of his, um, in terms of his batting prowess in uh, in India. So that that really means nothing. But they always had no expression of of uh, confidence in him. Uh, he's in form. Uh, or at current form, one of the best players in the country. Uh, and, uh, yeah, didn't get picked, you know, after being, and, I think, player of the player of the season. Um, and they and they took a bowler who didn't come up from injury. You can't take all those injured players with you. So bad, bad preparation, yeah. bad selection uh, and, a, and the wrong approach, I think. Well, I, I saw Ashton Agar. And all, all driven by hubris. They just overrate themselves. Oh, they, they just trust their they trust their processes, Jack. That's you ever heard them say that? We just trust yeah. our processes. Such terrible bullshit. Uh, but I, I saw Ashton Agar, who who actually was in the Indian tour and sort of sent home. Um, I saw him uh, uh, against South Africa, mate. He couldn't get a South African wicket. Um, and yeah, I, look, I think he's a very good limited or short form player, but I don't think he's, he's well. We know now that he's a long way from uh, being. Uh, um, being picked to play for Australia at Test level as a as a left arm finger spinner, um, yeah, uh, good effort though, terrific effort, and of course the uh, the fourth Test starts uh, this week um, on Thursday, I believe. Uh, look, the the game we we were following it, and I think uh, all our listeners would know that we were watching the scores come through, and at the very end of the show, of course, the Kiwis won by a run, and. It's one of the best test matches I've seen for a very long time. Um, both sides, uh, both sides were terrific, um, and and I think both sides would walk away thinking uh, we didn't do much wrong there. And <clears throat> New Zealand uh, uh, were, were bundled out pretty cheaply, but uh, uh, in the first dig, but their second dig when they followed on, they got four hundred odd, and, and I think they just kept coming. And and you know what really struck me about the Black Caps, Jack? on that final day. It was just how calm they were. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> inclined to hit the panic button every now and then, have a bit of a yell and what have you. But, uh, no, they were all just calm and smiling and just plug away and we'll see how we go. Right. Both both teams were just loving being there. And, look, it you know, the cliche, it's a game of inches. Uh, Jimmy Anderson, who is a number 11's number 11 um, uh, <laughs> as, a, as a batsman, great bowler that he is, yeah. um, uh, the final ball, he got a bit of glove on it. Uh, and, really, if he got a bit more glove on it, it would have sailed past the keeper and England would have won. Yeah, um, easy, easy. Anything that goes down the leg side like that, you could, you, could go, you could go either way with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... Something the Australian with the Ashes coming up, the Australians are going to have to prepare better for that because England are a seriously good team. Um, uh, they won three nil in 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 Pakistan for the first time ever, and if the Australians go over, Australians go over to England with the same hubristic approach that we're much better than they are, they will get towed up. Yeah, uh, they definitely need to 
to I think they need to approach you know the way that the English play their cricket their Test cricket now under McCullum and and that is to be aggressive score quickly don't worry too much you know if you get out cheaply so I think England is still open to be bundled out for 110 120 but um, but they have this sort of confidence that comes with McCullum's coaching. Um, I think they're going to be quite formidable because they seem, with Harry Brook, they seem to have sorted out their top and middle order a little bit now. And Joe Root is batting beautifully. So it's going to be hard one. Look, it'll be keeping us awake uh, till very late in the day, uh, at, at night, of course, uh, when the Ashes do come. But Australia has, of course, with the win in, uh, with the win in indoor, uh, they, uh, they will qualify for the, uh, uh, the world uh, title. Uh, to be played at Lords against India in June. Um, yeah, so, all right, what have we got, Jack? More identity politics? You're fixated on this stuff, Jack. No, no, let's forget about that. Um, uh, it, it, although it was amusing watching um, uh, Laurie Lightfoot, who's the mayor of Chicago, um, uh, who got 15% of the vote, I think. 15%? It's a long way from 50 plus one. Yeah, 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 and this is a this is a Democrat v Democrat v Democrat primary to oh, see who. Oh, good lord! Okay, yeah, because uh, uh, the last Republican governor of Chicago left office in 1931, I think, um, uh, and she's decided that the reason that she didn't get re-elected was because she was a black lesbian, um, and um, as a friend of Chicago from Chicago tells me, said, well. If the problem was he was a black lesbian, how did she get elected the first time? <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, anyway. Well, um, ah, look, the, the world is changing, Jack. Are you, are, you, are you up to speed with it? Are you, are you coping well with some of these changes, black lesbians no. and so forth well, being elected into politics? Yeah, well, it, it gets worse than that. It gets better than that. Um, we are talking last week about Android Doyle and Titania McGrath, his alter ego um, uh, uh, Twitter feed. Nice. Um, but I, and and I, I ran through her description of herself. as, a, um, But she's been top. This is the person who was given the job of rewriting Roald Dahl's books um, uh, so that they would be less offensive. Uh, originally, so because it, it's, it's many of them have been done. Many of them have been done earlier, and now they're yeah. being done again. Apparently, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this and, is the and, new. And the, the person who got the job uh, describes herself this way: "I'm an autistic, non-binary, asexual, polyamorous relationship anarchist." Oh, well, that's nice and clear. I don't even know what. I mean, I know what those words are, Jack, but I don't know how. They well, combined to form as individual of words. I know what they, but just yeah. jumbled together. I'm not sure what they. <laughs> yeah. mean. Um, uh, a, a good pal of mine reckons the Roald Dahl thing's the best bit of guerrilla marketing of all time. He says, first of all, you say we're going to change all these books, yeah. um, and people get people get all up in arms about that. So you sell a few books while people have a look at what it is, and then you say you come out and say, but because of that pressure, we're going to re-release. The original book yeah. side by and side with that. them, yeah, mm-hmm. which is a du- Puffin did that, and their division of Penguin, Penguin Random House, uh, yeah, they did that. Oh no, look, if you still want to buy the the ones that call people fat and stuff, then uh, you can have them. We we've, we've got them right here, ready to sell you. I yeah. know, and you'd expect it to to have gone right up. The, the people I wrote about this uh, a few weeks ago, and, and people were saying, well, who is the Dahl Foundation? Well, the, the Dahl Foundation is essentially his family. 
yeah. and various appointed board figures around that. And and they go, sure, no worries. Um, but it was absolutely ridiculous, uh, the whole thing, and you have to wonder whether it was all a bit of a setup, Jack. Um, well, I, I, my pal reckons it was deliberate guerrilla marketing, so and I think he might be onto a point. Oh, it does now, happen. Um, yeah. Maybe. It does happen the, from time to time. Um, uh, look, he, he was he was not much of a Blake. That's the other thing. Old Daly was he's a terrible anti-Semite, but uh, but uh, they think he was only an anti-Semite just to be a controversialist. So he, he, he pretty ordinary human being from all reports. Yeah, or he, might, he just might have been a, a, a contrarian, or as uh, yeah, that's the, that's what he was really. That's why he developed anti-Semitic views just to be contrarian, and they say yeah, but really yeah. didn't have any belief behind it. Yeah, so, I, I was accused of being a, contra- a, a contrarian just last night, and I said, "Well, now I'm I'm contrarian adjacent." <laughs> that's very good, Jake. You're learning. Yeah, you'll, you'll be you'll be an awesome. An autistic, non-binary, asexual, polyamorous relationship anarchist in no time. Yeah, can we just finish up with the best things on the net this week? Um, This one I really enjoyed. My grandfather told me that he saw the Titanic and that from the beginning he warned all the people that the ship would sink, but nobody listened to him. He was a brave man. He did not give up. He warned them again and again on several occasions until they kicked him out of the cinema. <laughs> like that. That's very good. Where'd you get that? Was that, and, uh, was that and, uh, and one final one from uh, uh, an English Twitter um, uh, uh, poster. Huge numbers of, of my followers seem to be drinking tea completely oblivious to the troubling colonial history and worse, drinking it with climate change accelerant milk <laughs> and worst of all, having it with the lifeblood of slavery, sugar. So much work has to be done to detoxify this country. Oh, you can't take away the Brits' cup of tea, mate. That, that, will, be all, that really will have hit, hit rock bottom there. Oh, look, that's good. Uh, and that's just uh, just perfect timing, Jack, because we're just going to wrap up the show now. And uh, thank you so much for your contribution today. Um, and uh, we just want to remind listeners that uh, you can make contact with us, drop us a line, leave us a letter, ask us a question. You can get me on Twitter in my DMs on Jack the Insider. Uh, and, uh, Jack, what's yours again? What's your oh, Substack? You can find me on just, – just look for Hong Kong Jack on Substack and you'll, Hong Kong you'll, you'll Jack find on me Substack there. and drop him a line. <laughs> can be as abusive as you like. He, he loves it. He actually loves a bit of abuse. I look forward to a bollocking every now and again. <laughs> Excellent work. And thank you, listeners, for uh, for bearing with us today. We'll, we'll uh, be back to you next week.